God, I love it. These are my favorite sorts of album stories. Sabotage is the sixth studio album by English rock band Black Sabbath, released in July 75. It was recorded in the midst of litigation with their former manager, Patrick Meehan, and the stress that resulted from the band's ongoing legal woes infiltrated the recording process, inspiring the album's title. It's co-produced by Iommi and Mike Butcher. Mike Butcher, who does not have his own Wikipedia page, but probably did all the the heavy lifting. Let's listen to Sabotage. Welcome to I Only Listen to Sabotage. Are we taping? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Vin, we are. I'm personally offended that when I type in Sabotage, the first hit is the Beastie Boys song. I mean... And the second one is a song by the Cancer Bats, who I'd totally forgotten about, but have a great name and are a good band. Seriously. The thing is, I didn't realize it until I turned on the, uh, until I uh, put on the shirt this morning, but this actually pertains to a song we'll be covering later today. So, uh, not today on this episode if we're actually already taping on it. I think we are taping. Hi, I'm Joseph Fink, podcaster and novelist, and this is I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, the show where I talk with John Darneal, singer and songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats, about what it means to be a fan be an artist and to be both at once. We are going song by song through the brand new Mountain Goats album, In League with Dragons. This episode, we are back in Brooklyn over a year ago, just a few weeks after the recording sessions for the album had finished, and we are here to talk about Waylon Jennings Live. Hello. Cool. Hey. <laughs> Welcome. It's a it's a beautiful. It's the first day of August. First day of in, August. One of my very favorite months uh, here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. So we're here today to talk about Waylon Jennings. Waylon Live. Jennings Live. So tell me about Waylon Jennings. Well, so I got the idea for this song. There's a lot to talk about with Waylon Jennings, and th- there is a podcast called like something in rhinestones or something that's, that people keep telling me to listen to. But obviously, since I can't remember the name, I haven't gotten there yet. It's supposed to be, it's called like cocaine and rhinestones, possibly. Uh, it's supposed to be really good. It's about country of the 70s and country generally. But the country scene in the 70s is wild. Uh, it's really, it's considerably more rock and roll than the rock and roll world. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of stuff going on in Austin, Austin becoming a, a center. And that's where Waylon was from. He was one of the outlaws, uh, which is not a, band. It's just it's the style of country that came from Austin. What was outlaw about it was largely that they weren't doing things the Nashville way. Nashville's a hegemony in country music. It is really, it's, it's so powerful. And if you can become successful in Nashville in country, then you don't really have to worry about your position that much. It's like you, I mean, you still have to work, but but Nashville, it's, it's big. It's sort of like going to, if you're doing theater, you go to New York, right? You can go to Chicago, the second city, right? It's like, and, and I think Austin had that sort of vibe, but Willie's from down there, Wayland's from down there, Towns Van Zandt. And they have their own style. It's a little sloppier. It's a little, they're all great players, but it it, it sort of lets uh, lets its belly hang a little more. And in in a you know, I think partly in a sort of a chasing that authenticity grail a little bit, you know, which is of course a myth. But Willie did a lot of work in Nashville. But but the stuff that happens in Austin in the '70s is really exciting and revitalizes country music in a lot of ways. Uh, in part because the records become successful, so then Nashville starts looking to Austin to see what what else they might do to continue growing. And uh, Waylon has a really beautiful voice that it took me years to wrap my head around. It's this warbly tremolo that uh, can sound off key if you're not really locked into what he's doing. It took me years. Uh, very sensitive, 
singer and a guy who lived very, very hard. If you listen to the, uh, his set at the Us Festival, I think the second Us Festival, they had a country day. And his band is just, <laughs> I mean, you can hear that Waylon is probably pretty loaded, but as soon as they kick in, like they slop together into this insanely tight groove, really great playing. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the, the outlaw scene of the 70s, and, uh, and I was driving to uh, Flyleaf Books in Chapel Hill, where I was going to give a reading on the paperback. A wonderful bookstore. I've yep. done a reading there, too. And I was listening to, I had my, at one point in my life, I took all my, I was clearing space, I took all my CDs and put them into these giant binders, right? And I had one on the passenger seat, you know, it's got like 200 CDs in it or whatever. And, uh, and there was Honky Tonk Heroes by Waylon James, which kind of is an absolute uh, icon of the outlaw country movement. It's a great, great record. And I threw it in. It's got this, it starts with this sort of loping country and it's a false start, right? And then the band kicks in and, and plays hard. And at some point, you know, he's so iconic that poking fun at how the style is, is such a, is, is so, it's one of those things where Sinatra's great, but everybody has done a funny Sinatra at some point because it's, it's so much its own thing, right? It's, it's uh, iconic's not the word I'm looking for. It's, 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 it's a type, right? And I ad-libbed the first line of this song drunk at the Meskwaki Casino, which is in Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to give a reading about Iowa. And I thought that was funny as hell. And uh, and then I, I argued with myself a little bit about, are you really going to stop listening to this great music to do your funny idea about it, right? And I went back and forth. And I'm like at stoplights, writing this stuff down and getting my phone out. What I'm doing right now is looking at my phone to see if I have the uh, the original uh, voice memo I did about it. So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the, the theme of the record, which is like when, when Waylon's singing this, he's a younger man. Now, outlaw country guys always sort of affected a grizzled cowboy near the end of his road pose, mm-hmm. but they were young dudes, right? They were, they were young dudes being young. Not super young, but, uh, but I thought of, you know, I thought of how a lot of these guys started playing casinos in the 80s. That's where, that's where the, the gig was. And you could, I almost went to see uh, Merle Haggard in 90... Seven ish, ninety eight. We were living in uh, in uh, Colo, and I saw a listing. Internet was coming in through the wall at fifty six kilobits per second, and uh, and I was looking up Merle's tour dates because I was fascinated with his eighties stuff, which is not peak Merle at all. And uh, and I found his website, which at the time was thehag.com, <laughs> and it had the greatest note on the front page. It said, "All tour dates are current. Make sure you check with the venue." to be sure the show is happening. Always make the call before you make the drive. <laughs> I thought Merle knows that his, some of these shows he might... Merle lived very hard for a very long time. Uh, he's actually Bakersfield, which is a whole other country scene worth ta- really worth talking about. Uh, Bakersfield had a country scene. Oh, my I God. I know that. Buck Owens. Uh, and uh, it's, it's as great a country scene as has existed. And so the, the recording out there, the tech, Buck Owens was obsessed with having the newest of everything, right? And so he had this giant collection like if a new moog synth came out he'd buy two right and then just keep them right he might or might not use them but that's the thing a lot of people don't know about country is it's often right up on the cutting edge of new developments in sound and recording and buck owens was that way and bakersfield was its own scene but yeah merle's from merle was a bakersfield guy buck owens a bakersfield I mean, he's from muskogee obviously but um but bakersfield is sort of the scene he's from i'm still looking for this memo talk for a second while i find this voice memo Actually, uh, have, have the Mountain Goats ever played uh, a casino? Because Night Vale has done two casino shows. And no. Weird. I go to casinos and I shoot craps and I tend to win. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm good at craps. It's one thing not widely known about me. But uh, no, we haven't had any offers. I mean, we played a cruise ship that had a craps table on it. Mm-hmm. And I went down there and won some money. 
<laughs> Twice in New Zealand, uh, we did Sky City in Auckland, which is just straight up. Well, like we were right off the casino floor in a theater. Um, yeah, it's a strange experience. I'm not a casino person. I feel a little uncomfortable. I like there. casinos in Vegas. I've never been to one outside of Vegas that really that really gets the concept as well. I know that mm-hmm. they do. There must again, like uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the Monaco? You know, places like that. But oh, the, have you been to Monaco? No. It is terrible. Yeah. It is because it's a place built for billionaires, yeah. and so. Basically, they kind of That's, immediately take... That would be one reason I haven't been there. <laughs> they will take one look at you, realize you're not a billionaire, and then they treat you like garbage. Yeah. It is the rudest place I've ever been just because, like, <laughs> if you're not there to spend, to drop, like, a million dollars in a night, right. they don't really yeah, yeah. give a shit about you. No, I haven't. And you know, what's the, what's the, you know, there's there's other gambling spots like that around, you know, uh, uh, around the world. Um but Vegas is sort of its own ecosystem. I mm-hmm. like. I, I used to enjoy going to going to downtown Las Vegas, and then they put a roof over it and made it a family attraction. And now it's kind of permanently wrecked. But uh, but old Vegas, and that's the West. I'm pretty interested in the West. Here's what. Let's hear what it was. On February the 13th, 2018, I had a voice memo marked Waylon slash chorus, and it went. On the so. And flash drives. Boom, 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 boom. For the passports and international money orders. For just in case I make it past the border. For just in case I make it past the border. So that was at a stoplight, right? Uh, and uh, and I did that, and that was the thought, right? I just I literally think I had a pen that it was right, and I realized you're not going to be able to read that later. Uh, and I had that idea, and then I went home, and I think the next morning um, wrote the demo, which, as you'll hear, has me doing a fake Waylon Jennings voice. I was about to say, yeah, there's this definite you're doing you're doing a thing. No, I'm doing Waylon, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not good. It's not. It's you know, it's it's Waylon is great, and I'm not. But uh, but John Worcester liked it when I sent it out. I said, you know, so I obviously won't be doing this. He said, no, you should do that. It was good, and you're singing well, and it fits the song. And I said, no, no, people would be feeling that. He said, no, they would hear that you're a singer, and you're singing the way it fits the song. Owen encouraged me to sing it straight, and that's what I wound up doing, and it worked fine. There's a little bit of the Waylon style because it was written in in that sort of cadence, right? Uh, it's that sort of storytelling. But you hear the – with the word casino, you can hear the way the vowels are ending that I'm sort of like – Holding a casino, right? A little bit longer. So. Yeah, it's clipped in yeah. a way that your normal. Well, it's drawn isn't. more. It is actually because casino is what I would say. But I'm saying casino, right? It's a little. No, it's just the way the words end to me. Yeah. The you, it's kind of like drunk in a dumb. Bum, it's a harder articulation. Bum, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. People, when people hear country music, they think of they bring a lot of weird assumptions that it's not about chosen aesthetics, but it has something to do with. The self-expression of the cowboy or whatever is nonsense things. That, I mean, obviously, that the music is also encouraging you to, to join in that shared fiction, right? But it's actually an aesthetic and musical choice, right, to sound like that. You know, Shania Twain of Alberta, right, <laughs> is not, you know, she's choosing to, to present herself in this way to express the music the way that, that, that works for her. I don't think there's anything really wrong with that. Um, but, yeah, for me, it's like Owen, Owen encouraged me to sing it straight. And, uh, and the thing is, within the band uh, – Locked in so nice to the, to the feel that I didn't need to sort of tell you what the song's supposed to sound like with any sort of different singing style. The the song then speaks for itself. Drunk at the Meskwaki Casino, right where God intended me to. 
looking up at the one man in this room who's handled more cocaine than me. Think back on the hard times just an hour or so ago before I got myself this drunk. When the valet parked my rented Mitsubishi with the beat-up old brown suitcase in the trunk Full of firearms and flash drive Full of passports and international money orders Just in case I make it cross the border Get a postcard from the gift shop Let my family know I'm doing fine Looking up at a map up on the ceiling To find the spot where we all meet up Further on down the line Head back to my table Get another scotch and soda for the room The band on stage is really working up ahead of steam Close my eyes and lean my head back Dream a little dream Full of fire Full of passports and international money orders For just in case I make it cross the border The arrangement seems to have been informed by the lyrics mm-hmm. and by kind of yeah, yeah, it's got pedal steel. It's got pedal steel, um, which is really interesting. And the um, there's a guitar solo at the end, an acoustic guitar solo that I think it's a guitar. Um, it is a mandolin. It's a mandolin. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I can usually. I mean, I played mandolin for a few years. I can usually hear That's that. That's Tom Gilman. Is we we actually had. Um, the guy doing Steel did a pass on it, um, but but Tom wound up uh, doing it again, and we we liked Tom's deal. Um, the guy doing Steel is a legend, um, Dan Duggan, I think it is. Uh, it's not Duggan; it's Dan Dugmore is the guy on the pedal steel there, and he's uh, like I say, utter legend of a guy. It was like when he when our assistant engineer and the house guy who helps you figure out how we heard that he was coming. They said Dan Dugmore's coming in. Wow, wow, okay, wow. Is he's a, is a giant? It's a giant deal to have a guy playing pedal steel on your record. Just a legend. He's played all. He was uh, with uh, Linda Ronstadt throughout the seventies. He said the the solo reminded me a lot of. I don't know if you listen to much progressive bluegrass. I mean, like probably the most famous is Nickel Creek these days. Oh uh, um, no! And the various. Uh, it also reminded. Do you know uh, David Grisman and Dog Music? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, David Grisman. Uh, he uh, he did stuff with Jerry Garcia. 
right? Because he's Jer- done stuff with a lot of people. Well, Garcia came out of a lot of, th- a lot of people don't know about the Grateful Dead that Jerry Garcia came out of the bluegrass tradition. When he when he started the band, he was teaching bluegrass re- lessons uh, north of San Francisco, and he has a record called "Not for Kids Only" uh, with David Grisman. That's a, one of the best children's records of all time. It's just fantastic. And uh, and Grisman is a, I think he has a record called. Mondo Mystico or something like that. That really, he's the guy's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he uh, he invented this type of music, or he claims to have invented called dog music that combines <laughs> jazz, kind of uh, Django Reinhardt. Yeah. Did, uh, this album, I think, that was just called Dog Music. That was them just kind of figuring that out. Uh, he's actually from Passaic. Oh no, kidding! Uh, Amazing. So we'll, we'll talk about Passaic in a bit. I mostly know David Grisman. He did a, a. Do you know Andy Statman? No. He's a klezmer musician, and oh, yeah. he and David Grisman did this, because uh, David Grisman's Jewish, and they did this one called Songs of Our Fathers, that's all Hasidic songs done right. in this progressive bluegrass style. David Grisman done a lot of weird stuff. I commend you for listening to the songs of the Hasidim, despite your already articulated opinions about the whole Oh, I love their music. <laughs> uh, so this this uh, this song takes us into kind of a general theme for the back half of this yeah. record, which is performance, touring, being a public figure, yeah, I think it becomes pretty explicit. And it, well, there's, it's like a, there's a there's a, a, a trilogy there, right? Um, and they're all in a row, right? Um, Doc Gooden, Passaic, and Waylon Jennings that are all about public figures in decline, right? Although in Ozzy's case, I mean, Ozzy, his decline lasted a long time and sort of became like he Ozzy rebuilt himself a number of times. You know? When you write about touring, I notice that you tend to avoid writing about the kind of touring you do. You tend to write about touring that is say at like a stadium level level yeah. or you know you you write about other forms of touring yeah well i think i've said this is like i can't imagine much more tiresome than a guy writing about his own touring experience in order to garner sympathy or whatever i mean you know even though like, jackson brown has the loadout that one song you know um uh that everybody knows and that that i think everybody hears and goes you know wow you have guys loading your equipment out for you <laughs> and you're singing about the melancholy of the whole deal right so I, I find figures whose pathos is more obvious you know uh you know people who are a big mess when in fact touring kind of messes you up a lot of the time and so there is actually there is a space that one could open up to talk about look it is labor except that in our, in our job we don't get to leave we don't get to go home at the end of the day right and that is something actually worth thinking about whether you know the what, what kind of job doesn't let you go home, right? So, well, you make a home out of your bus. How great is that? Like, some people really love it, but, uh, but yeah, it's like, but for these big guys who have to go out, the more, the more people you have on board, the longer you have to stay out to make back your own stake, right, and to be, and to be working. And these big tours, and not only that, everybody, because, you know, you have people working on percentage to whom it benefits a lot for you to stay out for three months as opposed to one or six months as opposed to three. And I think that's just the most crazy-making way to live imaginable. And this is – you can see this in the fact that how many entertainers do you think I can you name off the top of your head who seem a little tweaked, right? And so it's like, it just makes it pretty wild. And people get into drugs to cope with it, and that usually doesn't help. And uh, and then you get older, right? And uh, and in uh, in a lot of – and then so it gets harder to do the things that, that you used to be able to do after getting high all night, right? And uh, – and in baseball, in the case of the Doc Gooden song, it's even harder because you're really just eating up your body. You're destroying your shoulder. You, and uh, But it's another subject. But yeah, it's like when I think of these famous people, I don't. I know that the fact that they have more money than any of us have, right, makes it harder to say, well, these poor fo- fellows, you know, these poor people. But I mean, I think there's an aspect in which public life is so bizarre and unhealthy to begin with, especially these people who get famous young like Doc Gooden. I mean... That's not healthy. It's not healthy to be so seen, you know. 
Yeah, the the being famous before you've fully become an adult, I think, can really. But the whole industry, both in sports and every, the, whole, the industries are exactly sculpted around the idea that that's the best time for you to get famous. Yeah, and they have been. This is not a new development. This is this is Shirley Temple and Judy Garland, right? So yeah, the the other thing I think, along with not being able to go home, is this thing where your work is everyone else's night off. You're at the party night, right? Like yeah. people are looking to have a good time. Well, I love so. the actual work is the thing. I don't like parties. Like for me, nobody's having more fun in that club than I am. That's a guarantee, right? Like I'm having the most fun every single time. Even when I'm having bad nights, I always you know, I feel like it's useful and good, and so I, and I like to work. Uh, and, and I really, when I say I don't like parties, that is not an affectation. I do not like them. <laughs> so I'm glad that I don't get to go to the party and attend it. <laughs> I would rather be the entertainment at the party than, than, than be present at it. But, but it's, but yeah, and it's the fact that you stay out for so long, you know, and then you get a day off in our routing, it tends to be the day off tends to be in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it's like, so you don't, we try these days I've learned over the past few years to try and like go see a movie or something, try and do something. We had an outing where we drove some go-karts uh, in Denver at one point, you know, and that was really good and healthy. It's good to do these things. Um, but it can be hard to even motivate yourself. If you've done six days on, you sort of just want to lie down. But then the next morning you wake up and you go, I didn't – I had a day off and what did I do? I looked at the internet. You know, yeah. You feel like trash. <laughs> so That one I'm not sure is specific to, to what no, we do. That's, well, that's I feel like is- lots of people on the weekends are like, oh, shit. I yeah. did nothing all weekend. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a, that's pretty general actually. Uh, I mean, I think it's one of the one of the things that the internet has taken away from us is like you might have gotten so anxious with just the TV on that you would at least go outside, whereas the internet just gives you that constant. It's noon on Saturday and you haven't opened the door yet. So. Yeah, I, I had a inter- uh, Saturday recently where my internet went out all day, and it was one of the better Saturdays I've had in a bit. I started leaving my laptop at the office on Friday nights so that if I want to use the internet, I have to look at my phone, which I don't enjoy nearly mm-hmm. as much, right? and. Uh, Recommend it. This uh, song also continues kind of these reoccurring images in this album of espionage of secrets and missions. Yeah. yeah that's a good observation because I don't really have a riff about that. I don't know. I hadn't really noticed. So, Why do you, What do you think that relates to the idea of aging or looking back at years for you? Well, in 2011, when I started working for the CIA, sure. I started having a lot of thoughts and feelings about this kind oh, of so thing. Oh, so it's a fairly so, direct yeah, one. It's just, yeah. No, I just, you know, it's like that you write from your own experience and I am a spy. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> That's actually pretty interesting because there's one – there's a stereotype. I, I read um, – what was the first one I read? If I had my reading list handy, I'd know. I read some Ross McDonald last year, but I think I did something before that, some, some noir stuff. Uh, and you realize if you're a, a male in your late 40s, you go, well, here I am, a male in my late 40s reading detective books. I am exactly playing to type, right? It's like I'm doing what you say. I look at the books. I go, I want to read the one with the detective guy. <laughs> so, Well, you read those or you get like my uh... – my grandma's uh, kind of boyfriend before she died got really into like the big fantasy yeah. epics, the like thousand pagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, to me, like just stereotypically, that code's younger. I would think dudes would be more John Jakes, right? Like big historical fiction mm-hmm. or mysteries, thrillers, you know. And so, well, I also I read uh, Javier Marias, who it is frankly shocking and incredibly disappointing that more Americans don't know who he is because he's one of the best writers alive. The betting pool around who's going to get the Nobel has him on the list every year. It's like Marias is coming, right? And uh, and he also is very into some espionage and spy stuff in his big, very ambitious fiction. And uh, the Your Face Tomorrow trilogy really uh, really opened me up to to sort of the the possibilities of of espionage. But not only that, Rob Grier, another of my favorite writers, a French guy, um, is always doing spy and detective stuff, right? I mean, I think. 
this puts us into college uh, lecture territory. But like, you know, what, you know, what is a spy? What, what what does a spy do? You know, a spy poses as somebody other than himself a lot of the time. Who else does that? All of us, right? And uh, you know, what does a spy do? A spy wants to get information that might help him to have a little advantage in a situation that he might be able to use in case he finds himself in trouble. Who else? All of us, right? I mean, the spy is sort of a secret everyman who doesn't look like you get to sort of think, oh, well, there's this guy living this life totally different from mine. But his actual motivations are, are much closer to your own, actually. You just don't happen to have a briefcase full of explosives or whatever. But you and the spy share a number of number of interests. The spy is just a little more explicit his own presentation of himself, right? And so I, th- I think that's one – this is not – I'm not advancing this case – uh, in a hard way, but I'm saying we well, think about what, what what is a spy as an image as a sort of Jungian archetype, and uh, and it's a fertile ground for for character, for thinking about character, and for thinking about fear. You know, and uh, there was actually oh, this is interesting. Have you got Divided Sky Lane? Have you got that song? Uh, I have. I yeah, haven't that, prepared anything for it. But. Yeah, but it has the couplet in the bridge: "Good spies grow old; they never come in from the cold." Right, and that's the that that's a common theme in spying mm-hmm. that that you don't really get to retire. The Prisoner, you ever see this TV show, series, The Prisoner? I, I've watched about half of it. So, uh, so well, yeah, that's the whole plot of The Prisoner is he tries to retire and he finds himself on an island. Uh, he's, he's gassed in his room when he wakes up. He's in the village where nobody has a name, everybody has a number, and they want him to say why he retired. That's why he's there. Let's try and get that information. He doesn't want to say why, right? He, but he doesn't get to leave. He tries to escape. He's brought back by these rovers. Again, I think the prisoner is pretty obviously every man. That's why he's got a number and it's not even a high. It's six, right? Um, mm-hmm. But the prisoner is especially relatable, I think, to musicians uh, or anybody who works in a profession that doesn't have an age of retirement because it's a self-employment profession. And like you can, you know, obviously you can find people who help you plot all that out. But musicians, you will have noticed, very seldom retire. And when they do, they come back a couple years later. You know, Mick Jagger's still out there. He doesn't need a dime, right? Um, but it's like, because it's a job that is so rewarding just in its process and because because the work feels like it might still continue to have value and you know and because you don't have the security of a pension fund or anything like that musicians often just keep going until they die right which is a melancholy thing to think most of us when we think about our work we think someday i get to stop working and enjoy whatever i managed to save up fewer and fewer of us think that way because we know that our economy is not taking care of us that way but yeah, but with musicians, they they just go until they drop. They they very very seldom. Um, Anita Baker is on a farewell tour right now, and I uh, it's not coming to, to Durham. I'm kind of bummed, um, you know. And we'll see how that goes because most of them most of them just keep going, and there's something very melancholy about that. I don't know why though, because I have when I think about retirement, I don't want to retire ever. I want to be doing this when I'm 85. I mean, I think artists often don't, you know, because. There's a line between a job and a compulsion, right? Like this is compulsion. this is something that we would be doing whether we were being paid to or not. Now the job part of it, not all of it, not the touring. Yeah, <laughs> but you'd still be writing songs. Yeah, but the, maybe. But here, but the thing is, with the touring, it's like that's that's the part where that fix you get of of whatever happens between an audience and a performer. It does become something that there's a there's a dopamine response in there somewhere it's like it becomes something that people need i've talked to my therapist about it it's like do you really think you could do without that anymore you know <laughs> I, I hate to keep quoting Ani DeFranco, but she has another good line about this where she's like i know i i know i need my guitar but does my guitar need to be plugged in <laughs> i know i don't need my guitar i made a whole album without it <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean 
it is interesting and weird. And again, it's the sort of stuff that I'm always hesitant to, to sound like I'm raising complaints about. You know, it just seems self-obsessed to dwell too much on it. But I, but I dwell on it in others because you, you see people like like Waylon, who had to had to stop touring when when he uh, lost half his leg to diabetes when he was getting older. Um, but uh, or Doc Gooden, who uh, who kept trying to come back, you know, uh, after after battling drug addiction. But what what can you do after you've played baseball for ten years? Yeah, I mean, writers often don't retire either. Yeah, Philip Roth did just recently. Yeah, but they. So we'll see. I mean, like Stephen <laughs> King retired, and then yeah, he started right. releasing even more books than yeah, before nobody, he retired. Nobody believes Stephen King, right? I mean, come on. This is a guy who writes, you know, writes Cujo in a month well high. Right? So, yeah, I mean, we're all – none of us will ever be as a, as efficient at getting things out as Stephen King I, I was going to say, none of us will ever be as high as Stephen King writing Cujo. <laughs> that, that is true as well. Um, I think about, like um, – Leonard Cohen. You know, we were talking yeah. uh, yesterday, and I don't remember which episode it was, so sorry, listeners, at some point in That's the past. Right. We were talking about this uh, idea of musicians aging and this this fear of being seen as less relevant or, or their music being less interesting. And I yeah. think about Leonard Cohen, because to me, Leonard Cohen did the most interesting stuff of his career in his last 10 years. I think of songs like... It's a bold um, claim. It's a subjective claim. Uh, for me, you you listen to a song like "Did I Ever Leave You," yeah, and it's just it's still really pushing a boundary of music and trying something. Yeah, or even um, and this gets into kind of my question, which is there's because there's kind of in the last twenty years there's a few music legends that have done this kind of I don't know what else to call it except their death song like yeah. this this grand. Farewell. Johnny Cash, Rick Rubin kind of ushers this. Johnny in, Cash yeah. heard uh, uh, David Bowie did um, starts the person Black that Star? W- Black Star, but then the the song was the person who was brought back to life by Jesus, Lazarus. Lazarus. It was the song Lazarus, and then Leonard Cohen. One of one of his most interesting songs he ever wrote was uh, "You Want It Darker," which was very yes. clearly his goodbye. Except that it wouldn't surprise me a bit to learn that he wrote it that he's been working on that for fifteen years because that's that was his style, right? He he. Hallelujah was the process of apparently hundreds of verses that he worked on to sort of idly and and when he felt like it. The chorus was literally "I'm ready, my lord." Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, do you does that appeal to you? Do you do you have fantasies of writing your grand goodbye? No, no, I don't. Uh, I mean, the thing is, like for me, that would seem I don't know. I'm not into self mythology at all, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea that anybody should care about me saying goodbye, I, I don't. I'm sure somebody does, but uh, but. But I wouldn't want to. It's, I like to tell stories. That's what I like to do. You know? And then the stories, as we've said, they wind up being about me in some way or another. But I, I uh, yeah, I can't, I don't see myself getting there. I don't, I'll, I'll never write an autobiography. I don't, uh, I don't, that's not my, that's not the way I present. Hello, Joseph here. I have two books coming out this year. Seriously. May 11th, 2021. The first 10 years, two sides of the same love story. So there is a love story that happened behind the scenes of Welcome to Night Vale between me and Meg Bashwinner, MC and tour manager for the live Night Vale show. In this memoir, we recount the first 10 years of our relationship year by year without consulting each other beforehand. It's a funny and romantic story about how differently we experience and remember our lives. Then on July 20th, 2021, The Halloween Moon, my first ever novel for ages 10 and up. Esther Gold loves Halloween, until the year that Halloween night just won't end. Even she doesn't want Halloween to last forever. No matter your age, if you are a fan of what I do, I think you're going to love this book. 
get these books wherever you get your books. This is a kind of a lesser image, but it does come up in a few of the songs as images of borders, of crossing borders, mm-hmm. um, which seems to have a fairly obvious metaphorical connection to the passing of years. Yep. In this case, it's a person who's not even sure they're going to be able to cross a border. Oh, yeah. They're just, it's a contingency in case they're going to. Yeah, I'm super proud of that lyric. That's a good, for me, that's a, a nice little compact story. And I don't know if you have anything to say on the subject of borders. It's just something that... The Mountain Goats have referenced them many times, I think beginning with International Small Arms Traffic Blues. Well, certainly travel has <laughs> always been... But International Small Arms Traffic Blues was like, you know, our love is like the border between Greece and Albania. <laughs> so One of the all-time lines, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I don't know that I have anything... Uh, I don't know that I have anything to offer there. I think here it's more, it's a good rhyme for international money order. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely fair. Sometimes you got to let the the form dictate the content. Well, what it is here is it's like, I'm I'm trying to tell a good story and I'm kind of writing a poem. And for me in a a good poem, what makes poems different from, from fiction, one of the things is that, is that you try to get more done with less as a general rule. Now, obviously there's epic poets and that's different. But when I say is, is, brown suitcase full of passports and international money orders for just in case I make it cross the border. You tell a whole lot about this guy's circumstances, about who he is and about why he has a briefcase in the first place and why he's leaving and all this stuff. You get a lot of information just from a single rhyme. That's what I like to try and do, right? It is, generally speaking, if you are a young writer and you want to get famous, don't do that. Say the thing very clearly four times in the chorus, right? And then people will understand it. Otherwise, it's tucked away and, and, and it gets missed. But I like to have things tucked away and missed. I like, I like, I like for something to be missable. I don't think I don't want people to have to pay attention to my story. I think in something like this, I like the fact that there's enough of a melody and the playing's nice enough. Robert Bailey and them singing the harmony part that I, I wrote, but like that they brought their incredible power to. Uh, it's like. I like this because it feels like a successful country song. You don't have to enjoy the story. You can catch the vibe just from most of it and just pick some words out of the air on it and, and, and situate yourself in it. Or you can follow. I think it's kind of, um, it's a Warren Zevon song in a number of ways, right? Where you have a character who's in desperate straits and he's a stand-in for, for a performer, you know, in some way. Except mm-hmm. he's watching a performer and he's, and he's having a, a relationship, which is what you do as a performer because you think, oh, here's, there's me inside who I'm not really present to these people, but I am, and it's this weird contradiction, and uh, and so I think that's what's going on. Is you have it's like the, the dream thing we were talking about in an earlier episode, the spy in the crowd and Waylon on the stage. They're similar people. Yeah, going to the the music for a moment. The demo is seems primarily guitar driven, and then there's that piano line yeah. that kind of is sort of the lick, and then in the final version, the guitar steps back, and that piano lick kind of becomes the driving force. The piano seems significantly more forefront and more piano yeah well again because a reminder that we're discussing rough mixes right now so we don't know what shawnee gandhi is going to do with that mixers can make executive decisions and there might be a lot less piano in the song we're talking about by the time anybody hears it but yeah i mean i'm doing it all myself I'm, i'm getting those ideas down but already at this point i've been working with owen long enough in the writing of the album that i know that if if the piano riff i play has a variation in the second part he's not going to like that he's going to want it to repeat right he's going to pick pick the the figure and play that I'm sure if he would hear, he would take exception to that, but I know that that's true. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's more people playing, right? Um, I don't think I played. Yeah, no, I didn't play any instruments in this song. That's a uh, that's a uh, Bram who also plays piano. Bram on the piano and the acoustic guitar, and then Owen added some more piano himself. Johnny Spence on the Hammond, and uh, 
Peter on the bass and, and John on the drums. But yeah, it's when you have more people playing, there's a little more going on. And the guitar didn't need to be as forefront. When I, when I do a demo with a guitar, the guitar is going to usually be at the forefront. right? Mm-hmm. And then once you spread it out, you're sharing the, the weight of the song among more places, presumably to a more interesting effect. Talking about touring again, uh, one line that stood out for me was uh, looking looking for the spot where we all meet up. Yes. Uh, further on down the line, uh, which reminded me of, because on one hand, when you're looking at it as the passing of years, that becomes death. That's right. <laughs> but at the same time, it reminds me a lot of like anytime you meet up with friends who are touring people, you immediately start like looking through your list of cities being like, when are you in Cleveland? When huh. are you in Chicago? <laughs> Seeing if there's any time where those intersect. When I met uh, Roger Miller from Mission of Burma, who's been doing a lot longer than I have, uh, we were both playing the Pitchfork Festival in 2007, I think. And I had watched their set in the terrible heat and, and, and they just, there was the, they, I think they were touring ob- Obliterati or Off on Off. Uh, but I mean... Burma is a force of nature, and uh, and they just annihilate it. And then we were sharing an elevator. We were at the same. All the musicians were at the same hotel, and uh, and there he was. And I, you know, and this is Roger Miller. You have to. This is showing my age, but we're talking a lot about showing my age. Um, if you were anywhere near a college radio station in the eighties, in the, in the early to mid eighties, you heard that's when I reached for my revolver by Burma, and it was not on a TV commercial. And it was not covered by Moby. It was a song you were only hearing on college radio. I really doubt. And maybe K Rock played it a time or two. I don't know, but I mean, it was this was one of the songs that we you could you could build your case for college rock on that mm-hmm. and some Husker Du songs, right? And the <clears throat> replacements and you know, uh, but but I mean that song you hear it and you go, this is good music. This is as good as anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's like so good, you know. So this, so here I am in Roger Miller's and I was like, wow, man, <laughs> uh, enjoyed your work for a long time and I really love the new one. And it's oh yeah, good to meet you. Which one you? I'm the Mountain Goats. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I, well, good to meet you. And you know, come up to to the floor or, or to the ground floor, I forget which. And you get ready to say, well, it was nice talking to you. Hope I see, you know. And he said, I said, well, is it really, you know, I, um, uh, just, and he says, yeah, I'll see you out there. <laughs> I, I, I do that one all the time. That's a great one. Because <laughs> it's true. It's true. Eventually you will. Um, I usually say see you in hell to people when we're parting away. So uh, I'm just going to read from your notes for a moment because I assume this will, this will remind you of what you wanted to talk about. Uh, you wrote the following line, Walter White, last chances, closing nets, moments of grace. Yeah, no, well, this is the thing. is like, this is the plot. This is this guy, uh, if he's got all, if he's got a briefcase full of stuff, right? It's like uh, it's like this game Hitman, this uh, video game called Hitman, um, where he's always ready for mayhem to break out. And this guy has got all his stuff. He's, he's a spy who, who suspects that a net is closing around him. Well, a net is always closing around all of us, the net of death, the blessed long-anticipated bright hope of death is the net that is closing around us at all times. But uh, but for this guy, he wants to stay alive, and it's because that's part of the bargain. Right? It's like you sort of are supposed to fight for it instead of letting them catch you, right? So, so yeah, and there's the, there is that the, the Walter White feeling, which I think is one of the, one of the great last chance or story arcs of our time, right, is, is, is this guy who, who is a moral monster, right? Uh, but at the same time, you can't help rooting for his survival in some way, right, which is... And again, that's because you're him. <laughs> you can't, you know, I mean, we could all say and hope that we're telling the truth that we, you know, faced with his circumstances, which are fictional, that, you know, at some point we go, I can't do this. I can't do this. I think most of us would, in fact, say that very early on, right? Like when the dissolving of the body, right? And so it's, but, uh, but yeah, and, and last chance stuff is like, this is a guy who is, he's, he's heading off into the sunset, 
but not in the good sense, right? The sunset doesn't have a guaranteed sunrise coming up for this guy. I mean, the likelihood is he's going to prison, you know, and uh, that's why he says just in case. That's the, the value of that line is he doesn't really expect mm-hmm. this to work. So he's just drunk as God uh, in a casino in Tama, Iowa. Iowa is a long God. ways. Well, that's drunk as the Lord, you know. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, God's drunk all the time. Uh, so, but yeah, he's in Tama, Iowa. He's nowhere near any particular border. Right? It takes a long time to get get to Mexico from Iowa. Depends which border, I suppose. But either either one, you got to go all the way through. I, Tama's right in the middle, so you have to go to the, through Minnesota. So it would take you a good about eight to ten hours, I think, to get from the middle of Iowa to the Canadian border. Uh, but I haven't gone to Mexico because it's a country song. If in, a, in a country song, you, you go, go to Mexico. you go to the Mexican border, and then when you get across, you have a good time. Uh, we work a bit with a woman named Jenny, who was one of the head writers on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Oh no, kidding! Uh, yeah, she. We're, Please tell her to hurry up with the final season of Better Call Saul. <laughs> it's coming out. Uh, when is that? Uh, I, I I don't, don't follow. Know. I, just, I mean, presumably I'm, by the I'm time this airs, it, it will have been out. Because yeah, yeah. I know they like finished the premiere recently. Um, the premiere? Oh, they finished shooting. You mean? No, they like. They did the like movie theater premiere, so presumably oh, it'll be okay. on TV soon. Yeah, yeah. It's We're, the only I don't really watch any TV shows. I watched The Americans, and I watched that, and that's about it. So we've been trying to build a Welcome to Nightville TV show with her for a bit, um, and uh, yeah, I know they 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 struggled with Walter White because you're building someone who's horrible, right? Yeah, but it's hard to convince the viewers, right? Because People want him to be cool. When he's charismatic and Cranston's so good, the better your actor is, you know, the right way to do that is to have a Peter Lorre type who is in some way so hateable that even you, you like him, you, you're not cheering for Peter Lorre, right? Um, but you have to, you'd have to have a whole different aesthetic uh, scene to, to do that. In, in TV, that you're coming back to the character every week, you're going to be picking sides. That whole discourse was so bad. All the people hating on Skylar so bad. Yeah, well, it, because Skyler was the person trying to stall, stop Walter White, which she was right. But she's also culpable. Like, I mean, she's also there's Skyler's not without. You know, I don't I don't paint her as a hero. I, I think it's a hero less show. But people have to have their heroes. They have to pick one, and then because people can be quite terrible, they not only pick one, they double down. <laughs> it's like you know, because they can say I was you know by the end you're hoping it's like well it's this guy versus this crew of Nazi fucking bikers. Yes. I'm for the one moral monster who at least isn't a Nazi over the Nazis, right? So, you know, it's like if I got to pick between my moral monsters, give me the non-Nazi one, right? But, and uh, that's where we are as a country. It's exactly where we are as a country. Right? But, uh, but, you know, but at the same time, that doesn't, you know, it's good that Walter White dies, that he pays a price for, uh, for all the harm he has done, you know. And, like, and people, you know, like, like uh, Gustavo Fring, it's another, another character who's like, he's so cool, right? Well, no, he's not. <laughs> he's like, he's a murderer, you know. But uh, but that's that's in the nature of all this stuff. My character here, hopefully you're cheering for him to get away. We don't talk about why is he so far away from his family? Why does he need to send a postcard, right? Yeah, the people chasing him are probably justified. Yeah. They're probably also bad actors. I mean, that's the... That's the case of noir and the case of everything is it, you know, it, it sets up this here's your heroes and your villains. And no, none of them are. But sometimes in, in noir, you'll have like the, the gumshoe guy who's in a lonely place, right? The, the arresting detective is, a, is an unpro- unproblematic good guy. Um, but, and he's a boring guy. He stays at home with his wife and, you know, entertains a little bit. But uh, you ready in a lonely place? No. That's a good one. Um, so, uh, but 
But generally speaking, detective stories of, of the type we're talking about here, part of their lesson is that whoever you're cheering on, he's also not a good guy, right? And that's a personal lesson for you, right? It's like when you paint yourself as a hero of your own story, you're telling a fake story. You should be your own hero in some ways, but you also got to be aware of your failings and your self-interest and, and try to paint an honest picture if you can. Right where God intended me to be Looking up at the one man in this room Who's handled more cocaine than me Think back on the good times just an hour or so ago Before I got myself this drunk When the valet parked my rented Mitsubishi with a beat-up old brown suitcase in the trunk Full of firearms and flash drives Full of passports And international money orders For just in case I make it cross the border Get a postcard from the gift shop Let my family know I'm doing fine Looking up at a map up on the ceiling To find the place where we all meet up Further on down the line Head back to my table Get another scotch and soda for the room the band on stage is really working up ahead of steam Close my eyes and lean my head back Dream a little dream Full of firearms and flash drive Full of passports And international money orders Just in case I make it cross the border never made this connection before but when you we were talking because I, I i think a lot about horror and how I, I feel like it how good it is how great it is because i feel in a lot of ways it more accurately represents reality than straight dramas mm -hmm. because it brings to the forefront the anxieties and the the way it feels like life yes. rather than depicting life uh and one thing about that is horror is one of the few popular entertainments that can get away with regularly having bad endings 
Yes. Like, usually the good guy doesn't win in horror, or if they That's do, right. it's at a great cost. Um, and noir is, I think, a similar thing. Noir is, is feels like real life because every shadow has yeah. a bad actor in it. That's and right. uh, you can get away with the good guys losing and still have it be popular entertainment. That's right. Although, I, I, as with pretty much every, this is something I think about a lot these days, problem with horror that is with fiction and, and practically everything else, nobody has boring days. Nobody, nobody has a day where nothing much happens or a week or a month. Right? Everybody has to... Everybody's always in the spotlight. <laughs> you know, it's the nature of fiction. But I like I, I I find myself in books. Go, oh well, I open up and I know something else exciting is going to happen to our friend here today because it's his book, and so he doesn't have any times where he's just sort of waiting for something to happen. And it's I mean that's you see this in my books that like I do want people to be sitting around waiting for something to happen. I, I think that sort of realism is lacking from a lot of storytelling. In League with Dragons is out now. Buy it. The Mountain Goats are also on tour throughout this year. Go and see them. We have two new Welcome to Nightville episode collection books out right now. These are fully illustrated with a ton of behind-the-scenes commentary and a great way to try out the show. Another great way to try out the show, we have live shows throughout the West Coast, the South, and Canada. That's in September and November. These are completely standalone shows. You don't need to have heard the podcast to understand them. They're great nights of theater. I only listen to The Mountain Goats as a production of Nightville Presents with Merge Records. It is produced by Christy Gressman, editing by Grant Stewart, mixing by Vincent Cachione. All music courtesy of the Mountain Goats and Merge Records. Thank you to Christina Rents, Ryan Madison, Seaside Lounge in Brooklyn, and The Rubber Room in Chapel Hill. Check out nightvalepresents.com for more information about this show and all of our other shows, like The Orbiting Human Circus, created by Julian Coster of The Music Tapes and Neutral Milk Hotel, and starring John Cameron Mitchell of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. This is a surreal dream journey through through a Paris that never was. Listen to the first season now and the second season coming very soon. Thanks for listening and hail Satan. From the creators of Welcome to Night Vale, Alice Isn't Dead, and within the wires comes a new Audible original. Unlicensed. In the outskirts of Los Angeles, where the cul-de-sacs and strip malls sprawl into the desert, two unlicensed private investigators scrape by on whatever small cases come their way. But when a teenage girl pleads for them to take the strangest case of their career, this unlikely pair, with no resources and no backup, will follow a trail of seemingly unconnected cases, which will lead them to a ransom, a murder, a mysterious wellness center, and a conspiracy that might go all the way to the governor. It's important to catch small fires early. They don't stay small for long. Unlicensed. Available now at audible.com slash unlicensed.